Well, you may be seated. You may be seated. Okay, tonight we're going to uh, deal with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We want to kind of label this uh, lesson uh, on the thought of interdependence. Interdependence. And I'll come back to that uh, in, a, in a few minutes. You know, last week uh, the Apostle Paul ended chapter 1 by explaining to the Corinthians, you know, why he didn't come uh, back through um, on, on after, uh, as he had promised. And because of that, they, you know, he let them know that uh, one of the reasons was that he didn't want to uh, have to uh, issue a strong rebuke to them. And so in order to get an understanding of how chapter 2 start off, you kind of have to go back and tie 23 and 24 uh, verses of uh, the 23rd and 24th verse of chapter 1 together and let it flow into uh, chapter 2 because that thought kind of connects what he's going to say at the beginning of uh, chapter 2. And so before I read that and then I go right into chapter 2, you know, most of y'all remember from the first letter that Paul wrote that the Corinthian church had some serious problems, you know. Um, they, were the, they were divided into factions. In other words, they were caught up in a cult of personality where you know, some like Peter, some like Paul, some like Apollos. Uh, they had a problem with uh, incest and adultery in the church, and uh, there was trouble uh, in the church because they was arguing amongst each other. Uh, uh, also, we had to deal with the disruption in the worship service. Everybody was standing up, speaking out of turn, and speaking in tongues and all that. And then on top of that, you know, there was false teachers who were criticizing Paul and uh, refusing to accept his authority. And so... On that visit, in the midst of all those problems, you know, Paul had to deal with, but uh, it looks like he wanted to give them time to deal with some of those problems because uh, his time together with them had been painful. It was not a nice visit, you know, because it was a lot of things going on. And so that's why at the end of uh, chapter 1 in verse uh, 23 and 24, it says, Now I call upon God as my uh, witness, that I am telling you the truth. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a serious rebuke. And then he says, but that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together. Somebody say work together. We want to work together with you so you will be full of joy. For it is by your faith that you stand firm. So he ends that talking about wanting to work together with them, and then he's going to begin letting them know that there was this interdependence that they had on one another. So when we look at this and start in the chapter 2, when you hear the term interdependence, what, what does that mean to you? Everybody got a mic. Your answer is your answer. What does that mean to you when you hear interdependence? I think we're dependent upon each other. Okay, yeah. Interdependent, have a state of, of being dependent on one another. You know, as if you can't do something by yourself, there's a mutual dependence. And now, in order to fully understand how God sees that, you have to kind of go back and look at a lot of the metaphors that God used to describe the church. And all the metaphors that he used to describe the church, when you read the letters and you read the New Testament, you know, you'll find out that God depicts the church as a family. 
Families have to depend on one another. No family member is an island by himself. Even though they don't always get along, just like in the church, they are still, they're still better off when they realize that they have to depend on one another. The, 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 the church is depicted as a body, you know, and you can just use our human body as an example and see how every part of your body is dependent on other parts. And so the church is also depicted as a team of athletes, you know, they have to work together and depend on one another. The church is called an army, and the church is called a flock. And in a certain place, it talks about the church as being a fellowship. So all those terms lends us to believe that God intended for the church to be composed of people, members, where they are interdependent on one another. They're supposed to work together as a unit, and in order to do that, they got to know how to get along and got to know how to strive to, when we disagree, to disagree in a way that's still going to keep the body unified, not disrupt or divide the body. And so when you understand that, then I'll read and start in chapter 2 when he says some of the things. He says, now, after he finished up chapter 1, he says, so I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. Going back to what he just said in chapter 1. So I decided not to come again, and then since y'all still ain't solved these issues, then I don't want to come and put grief on top of grief. So I made a decision that I was going to come later and not at that time. He says, now look, in verse 2 he says, For if I cause you grief, who will be glad with me? So he said, now look, when I cause you grief, you're the church and the ministry that, that, he, that, uh, that I founded, he said. So if I call you, cause you grief and we're all part of the same body, then who's going to be glad with me when I come? If everybody's mad and everybody's in grief about what I've said, then hey, then it's not going to be a good visit. So he says, now look, if I cause you grief, who will, be, who will make me glad? He says, certainly not someone I have grieved. And so he said, look, my spiritual success is intimately connected with whether or not you are happy whether or not you're not grieved. And that's who's trying to let them know, hey, and if you're, if you're grieved and you're dealing with something that is not joyful, I don't want to be the cause of it. Because if I'm the cause of it and I come, then guess what? You ain't gonna ha- I ain't going to have no joy when I get there and see Major's face. You know, <laughs> I mean, because when Major hurt, I'm supposed to hurt. So when Major look at me like that, I'm going to feel that. I can't start jumping up and down when I look at Major's face and say, man, Major's still hating on me. You know what I mean? I can't go to that now because, look, ain't nobody going to be able to cheer me up and I ain't going to be able to cheer Major up. But if Major understand that, hey, man, when he hurt, I hurt, when I hurt, he hurt, that we depend on one another, then that means that we work hard to try to put all of our differences aside so, because we know that our joy is connected. And if you're in a church, you're in a body, and an, another member is experiencing some type of discomfort, another thing that's not joyful, and you don't feel that with them, then there's a chance that you're not connected to that person. You, you have no connectivity to them. And when we come to part of being a part of a ministry, 
We're supposed to be able to connect with one another and feel one another's pain so that we can be there to support and then provide the things that is needed in those times. But it's hard to do that when you don't see the importance of being interdependent on one another. Go ahead, go ahead. So when, when you when you naming all those terms about interdependency, how does that play out in today's time with Zoom and you know church online? Does it make the church stronger or, or I wouldn't say stronger or weaker, but how does that play out when you say interdependency? So I'm dependent on Fred or I, I would need to see Fred or, or interact with Fred so that there is some fellowship because yeah, Zoom, you get the same message, but it's, it's not the same. There's no community. There's no real fellowship, if you will. And, 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 and I will agree with you on that because I'm a proponent that, hey, I believe that the Bible is true, that believers ought to assemble themselves together in some way, shape, fashion, or form. But again, trending now is, hey, folks are saying, hey, if I can see you online, I'm connecting to you online, but I don't see that as a true connection that because now you're online, you're not going to feel when Major is hurting because you may not even get the word that Major is hurting. You see what I'm saying? But if you add church and at least a part of the body, you may get a, you could sense that when certain things are happening or if you see Major or things of that nature. Now, uh, uh, but that online audience is still there, going to be there. It's not going away. But I don't know if there is an easy answer to how to be connected like a body, like they talking about here in all those terms. You know, it'd be like saying, I, I play for the Green Bay Packers, but while they go to Atlanta, I'm going to stay in Lambeau. Right. I, I'm going to just watch them online. I'm going to watch them on the big screen. I ain't hurt, but I'm supposed to be playing linebacker, but I'm going to be in Lambeau looking at it on the big screen. But when you break church down to that simplicity, the people today will argue with, well, I don't need all that. Well, I'm just saying I believe God intended for the church to be a body that is connected as much as possible. And not just striving as a church, this could play out even to the church universal. You know, it would be nice if all the, the churches that say we're Christian churches could at least be unified around certain things so we don't look so disjointed to the world. So a lot of times when the world look inside the church and see how disjointed we are, they use that disjointedness to say, hey, why should I even be a part of that? Because you don't look like a team. You don't look like a family. You don't look like a group of athletes. You don't look like an army fighting the same battle, fighting together. Y'all fighting against each other. And so if that's the case, who want to be a part of a team where the team fighting against each other instead of working together for the overall good of the team? So that is a difficult look. But today, as a pastor, that's a frustrating thing to me, but that's a reality. And I know I'm not alone in that when it comes to ministers and pastors who are concerned about, hey, man, what is going to happen? But I think things go around in circles and cycles. I believe the cycle is going to get back around where people are going to feel like, hey, no, nah, this online stuff ain't really working because I see my life is not getting better by sitting at home. I I'm missing out on a lot. Even if it means I'm going to go and join another church somewhere, I still feel like i got to be around people. And, I, and, and what frustrates me is that people use that logic when they come to church, but they don't use it when they come to everything else. And I, you can't argue with them, but, but when they say we're going to get together for a, go play pool down at, you know, the wing place, they go, well, I'm going to stay at home and I'm going to play online. 
they're gone. I mean, Latham them had 110,000 folks in the stadium. But some of them same folks ain't going to church the next day. Because they're going to say, well, I'm going to watch it online. I'm going to stream. Well, they could have watched Alabama get beat online. They didn't have to go there and witness that firsthand. Latham saw it online. I saw it on TV. They, they, I'm just using that as an example. Latham, you, you sit there. But, but, but uh, I'm trying to help somebody online who come up with these weak excuses of why they can't fellowship. Okay, let me go to shopping. Every now and then when I go out to the place where people buy stuff, they, they, they doing it. I know online is popular. Even I order stuff online now. I learned that. But man, there are some folks that's online and in the stores. Miss Thelma, you got a mic? Yes, sir. <clears throat> Pastor, I'm going to tell off on myself. You know, when, when I was um, at home, was nothing wrong with me, and I was looking online, I felt separated. I didn't feel apart, like you were saying, you know, because at home when I looked at Bible study, I was doing something else. Half the time I was nodding, didn't hear what you were saying, but then I said, wait a minute now. I know I'm a member of striving. I know I love the people that strive, and I show enough love past the word. I'm gonna get myself up. If I'm not working late, if I'm not sick, I will be in Bible study. And I understand what you're saying. You know, when you hear amongst the saints, you know, it's a connection. And like you said, you can feel when one is down or one needs a word to be encouraged and stuff like that. So I feel good since I've been coming to Bible study. I feel like I'm a part of that puzzle. You know, you can cut your own self out. Amen. Just by the things you do and you're supposed to do the other way. Amen. Amen. So, but, you know, I'm glad I'm back connected with Bible study. Amen. And, 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 and so, you know, when we start talking about it, you can kind of look at it like we, I think one of the little analogies we put out on, our, on, the, on the, to the intro to this lesson was, I think Marcus came up with the example of a chain. You know, the chain is linked together. And if you take any one of those links out of that chain, it's no longer a chain, man. It, it's not effective. When it starts taking links out, taking links out, it's just not as effective as, as, a, as a chain. And, and the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. So therefore, you know, whether your weak link is sitting in here or weak link is sitting at home, that, that chain is going to be impacted when you talk about that interconnectedness and that interdependency that, that we talk about and that, we, that, that, that the church is built on. But again, I'm, I'm not upset because I just realized this the times that we're living in and we're living with a, a generation of young people who don't really connect like the old folks connected. Meaning that when I talk to my grandson, he don't have to see me to feel like we connected or he don't have to see things. He feel like if he got some in his hands, he connected. Most of the people that he deal with, you know, when he came in out there and all that, he don't know them folk. He don't. Some of them may be in California, some of them may be all over the world. But when they get on that device, he feel like he's con connected to them. And he wouldn't know them if he walked up to them, don't even know their name, just, they just playing this thing together. And he is so locked in at it. I mean, and it not, he's not the only one. A lot of young people got to do it. But he's so locked in at it that he committed to it. Because one day I was going to make him late getting on. Because I, I decided to come back another way. And he said, I'm going to be late. I said, okay, what's the big deal, man? Just okay. He said, you don't know the dungeon master could kill me off. Now, that's the wrong thing to say to me. 
You're going to make me drive faster to get back home. So the dungeon master, who is this dungeon master? Where he at? I mean, he got that much control over you? That, I mean, and that's the first time EJ ever bowled up at me. I mean, I almost said, man, look, I'm just going to put you out on the side of the road right up here. <laughs> I, I see. But, but he got upset. And that let me know right then, that, hey, man, these kids are locked into that. And they see that as my sense of community. And therefore, they would rather do that than to come to church and interact with people in real life. I don't know what that's going to look like 20 years from now when that generation get up and they have not been connected except for through devices. You know, I don't know. I, I, I just, in my gut feel, it's going to have to impact their social skills some kind of way. Because sooner or later, you got to interact with real people and find out they're not just on, online with folks. But, but again, that's the time we're living in. And so, he, he, did I, anybody else have a question, another question? Okay, so, so Paul was trying to let them know they're interconnected. So he said, now look, it, 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 he said, let me read verse 3 again. He says, that is why I wrote you as I did, so that when I come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from you're being joyful. We connected. If you don't have no joy, I ain't going to have no joy. And I don't want to come back there and you ain't got no joy because now both of us going to be in a bad situation. But I think sometimes if we really believe that, we wouldn't come to church without joy. Because sometimes your lack of joy kill other folks' joy. Amen. And, and so we, because we're connected. So he said, look, man, when we come together, we're supposed to come together in joy, man. It shouldn't be a task or a chore. Oh, God, I'm going to church again. When you walk in the door with that attitude, you won't kill somebody's joy because you're connected. But if we don't look at it like that. We say, it's just me. I'm just, it only impacts me. No, it, it's going to impact the kids you teach it upstairs going to impact the folks that you greet when you speak. People are going to see it on your face, and it's going to impact other people because we're all connected. And so that's why he says, man, look, man, we want to make sure that, that we experience joy because we ought to come to church and we ought to come together in joy. And just don't even think about a church. Just imagine those of you who come from big families. And y'all celebrating Thanksgiving or whatever, Christmas, and y'all coming in. You coming in hoping it's going to be joy. You ain't coming in there hoping somebody's going to walk in with no joy and kill everybody else's spirit. But then sometimes, even in families, they like church right around Thanksgiving dinner. Somebody got to bring up something and kill everybody's joy. And, and they need to be told, we're interconnected. When you come in and you don't have no joy, you're going to kill our joy. And so that's what we got to see, the same thing that works in the church. We're all supposed to bring some joy in the body. And man, if we can just come to church, then the scripture be true. We'll make a joyful noise to the Lord. But we can't make a joyful noise if your joy is gone. Don't make no difference. And when, when that happened, Major, that means the praise team and everybody got to work harder. Because they looking out there on your face and ain't seeing no joy. And you robbing them of their joy. And their job becomes that much harder when you don't bring the joy. So if you're online and you're going to come to church on Sunday, bring the joy. So that everybody will have joy. Then we can leave here and go to the picnic and we'll have 
because we're connected. And so when we see this, he said, now look. In verse 4, after he started talking about being joyful, he says, now, I wrote that letter, and he gave me four terms here that I want y'all to kind of underline. He said, I wrote that letter in great anguish. Man, I, I was going through some mental stuff, man, as I'm writing. I mean, my mind, I mean, I, my mind was perplexed. I'm writing this letter. Anybody, you know, sometimes you write something to folks, so some of y'all text in great anguish? Yeah, 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 okay, you know, you text in great anguish. People can read that and say, man, hey, they can feel the anguish. They can feel the anguish. Ooh, that's some, ooh. And, and so he said, look, I wrote that letter in great anguish anguish with a troubled heart. In other words, you know, man, I was agitated and stirred up even on the inside. I didn't have peace when I was writing. That's what he was saying, with a troubled heart and many tears. Man, my, even my emotion was tied up into that thing, man. I'm crying as I'm writing this letter. That had to be a tough letter to write. And then he says, I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much I love you, or how much love I have for you. So in the midst of this painful letter, he said I had to write it because, look, I didn't want to grieve you, but at the same time, I needed to let you know just how much I love you. Sometimes, you know, love told in truth hurts. It hurts. And, and so, I, 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 you know, one of the most famous lines that I remember to this day, Jack Nicholson, you can't, you can't handle the truth. He, and that's a, that's a true line right there. A lot of times people say, oh, I can handle the truth. No, they can't. Most, most folks cannot handle the truth. Even pastor, you know, truth, when it hits you in the heart, you just can't. Handle the truth. But sometimes the truth has to be told in love because you're hoping that in, the end result will be a better relationship. If the truth is designed to help me and make me better, then the relationship ought to be better after truth, after the truth is given. Especially if the truth is given in love, it's not to destroy somebody, but to help somebody. But you can't do that if you don't fellowship with one another, you don't have no relationship with that person. Man, I don't want to hear nothing from you. You don't want to hear nothing from me. If I don't know nothing about you, we ain't got no relationship, all of a sudden you're going to come drop your truth on me, and you don't even know me. I mean, you, you ain't got no right to drop no truth. Even though we're in the same body, we're in the same family, but you don't even know me. Even we're connected, but we're somewhat disjointed at the same time. Now, and that takes work, because connectivity like this and, and, and being interdependent don't just happen. It takes work. It has to happen on purpose. But if people won't do it on purpose, then you're going to have those type things. And so things will go on, and you just don't feel other people's pain. You don't feel their joy. And, and what that causes is that then when your brother or your sister achieves something that's worth celebrating, you don't know how to celebrate with them. And instead of celebrating and clapping and doing what you're supposed to do, you kind of talk it down because you don't even have really, you don't know what that person went through to get that award or what they had to go through. All you know is, hey, they get it. But 
I don't see them as my sister or my brother getting an award. I just see it as another person in church getting recognized. Instead of saying, man, that's my brother, that's my sister. We're in the same body, man. Therefore, we need to celebrate with them because we can, we can experience the same joy that they're feeling. And so this is, this is not something that's uncommon in, in church today because this is something that has to be done on purpose, intentionally, and try, try hard. But the enemy understands that too. And so because he's going to come back later and say, man, the enemy know. He got schemed. He understand divide and conquer works. He understand that. So therefore, anytime he can divide and separate the flock, then he know I can pick off certain people once I separate them from the rest of the flock. And so I, I do believe that a lot of Christians under the times we're living in now are getting picked off. Sitting at home, don't realize it, they're just getting picked off. It's just a matter of time before they fade on into the woodwork. They, don't, they ain't even looking at the, you know, they start off looking at the praise and the sermon. Then they just say, okay, I'm going to just catch the sermon. Then now when the sermon goes more than 40 minutes, I, uh, I have to catch the rest of it later. I mean, you know, we don't entertain enough here striving to hold your attention for a whole hour and a half, I don't think. We ain't got no smoke. We ain't got all the stuff that will hold your attention. So we ain't got none of that. All they're going to get a little praise team action here. And if they come out flat, y'all, oh, I'm going on to the next station. Let me go on somewhere else. Pastor done got up there talking about this. Oh, let me go on somewhere else. It's, it's hard to try to end it. And so that's why they teach us. Like, well, you know, you got to look into the camera. You got to connect with them like you're looking into their eyes. Man, I got to learn. I have to remind myself. Have to speak to the folks online. Love y'all. How y'all doing tonight? I would better you be sitting right in here. But, but since you're online, I hope you're smiling with me right now. Because it's hard to do that effectively when, when you can't feel each other like Paul is trying to make this interdependency here. He said, man, I, I wanted to let you know just how much I how, how much love I have for you. And, and, and even though this was a painful letter, Paul realized that his heart was in the right place and he really did love this church because we found out earlier, this was a, this was a blessed church, a, a powerful ministry there. It's just that they had so much going against them because they were coming out of this pagan culture and they brought a lot of that stuff into the church and some of it bled over. And so now, when we get to verse 5, start, Paul started addressing how do we deal with and forgive a brother or a sister. In this case, if you remember from 1 uh, uh, Corinthians, they had them kick the brother out. And now, now Paul come back and say, okay, y'all did what you had to do, but now you got to give the brother a chance to repent. You got to give because he's still part of the body. You can't just leave him out there so he get discouraged and he leave for good, you got to be willing to forgive him and comfort him. And sometimes I think that's where the church often falls flat because, you know, even though the Bible tells us to forgive, sometimes we forgive folks, we just can't forget what they did, and so therefore, instead of being genuine in that forgiveness, what they did keep coming back. And people can sense that. They can sense that when you're still holding something in your heart against them, and all that, no matter what they've done. Like we understood from our lesson that we just got through teaching on grace. Hey, man, grace covers it all. 
And so if we understand that, that means when people make a mistake, we got to be willing to, when they repent, when they show some sign of remorse and all that, and they're going to come back, you can't hold that against them because they're still part of your body. You know? So what would that look like? So it says in there that uh, Paul was telling them, hey, kick them out of the church. I mean, so if you kick somebody out of the church, that means, hey, you can't come back here until you get together. I, I guess that's how it looked. So if you fast forward to now, let's just say somebody did something in the church and you said, hey, you know, you're infecting the rest of the body. I got to ask you to leave. How would you go about reinstating that person? Because if you kick them out, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm not wanted here. So I'm not going back. And I guess during that time, the people stayed, they were so connected that they could talk to the brother and be like, hey, you know, you can come back. You know, we, we forgive you. But today's time, if you kick somebody out of the church, that's probably a wrap. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's a good question, you know, because right now, you know, a lot of churches have policies for how do you discipline members and things of that nature. Very few churches, kicking them all the way out of the church is probably a had to be some really serious offenses, you know, because if someone, you say, hey, you're going to excommunicate someone from the fellowship, they got to be doing something that's really infecting the whole body. Like this guy was... Huh? Yeah, he slept, yeah, he slept with his stepmama. That, that, was, that was serious. And he didn't repent. He didn't want to repent. He didn't care. So they say, hey, look, Paul said, hey, you don't even have fellowship with him. That's what he said then. But now he said, hey, now that some time in the past, the brother doesn't show some signs of repentance, then you got to receive him back. Now, and you will hope that people will come back. Now, sometime in ministries, like if somebody committed a, an offense and they were in a certain position, no, normally churches have policies where you okay, you get sit down for three months and someone mentor you or whatever, and then you come back to work. Or you get to sit down for however long. Every church seems to handle this a little bit different, but a lot of time, like you say, Instead of this working out like this in these community churches, you know, back then when you had a church in Corinth, uh, that probably wasn't 25 other churches there. Right. It probably just, you know, one big church, you know, church of the city. You may have had a, another little pocket here, but it probably wasn't 20 different churches you can choose from. So now, you know, somebody get mad at you, you, you sit them down and you, you, you say, oh, look here, we got to excommunicate you just for a little bit till you show some signs of the repentance. Well, I'm going to just go over here to Reverend Smith Church. You know, I'm just going over there. I don't need to come back to y'all. That's a church on every corner. And when I come in, he ain't going to ask me where I come from and what I've been doing. I'm just going to go in there and start sitting there on Sunday morning. And next day, you know, I got the right hand fellowship. They're going to want to know why he left Stroud. <laughs> Now, now, again, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that, that, that that's in, in, when I was in the Baptist church, you had to come to the church by certain means. You know, you either came by, you know, baptism, you won't be baptized, you come by Christian experience, or you come by letter. You know, and that means letter means you left another church, and that letter let me know that, hey, now that I'm a show of a friend's church, the letter say, Bowden and sit me down and excommunicate me. <laughs> So now the letters say he left in good standing. But I don't think church would do that. I mean, we don't do that here at Stratton, but I remember when I was growing up, when people joined the church, they always had those categories. And some people had their letters. I come from a letter from Good Hope saying that I was a good member, I was a deacon, I was this. 
And as a result, that gives me that letter of commendation. And, and the Bible talks about that when Paul gave letters of commendation for some people when they was traveling evangelists and things of that nature. So people would see them as being authentic. But I don't, you know, how, I see how that can be translated into with members going from one church or people moving and coming from one church to another church. Brother Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, back home in the, oh, we had it in the Baptist church, um, Virgin Island Baptist Mission. If you do something, they would put you on probation, like three months probation. And if you do not straighten up, then they put you out, like a, they leave you as a sinner or a publisher. They don't, you, you cannot pray, you cannot do anything. You can come to church if you want to, but you, as far as they are concerned, unless you change, you cannot do anything in the church. You can just come like a visitor, but they, they cut you off from the, from the lease, from the name, you're leaving the church, but at the same time, they give you three, three months probation first. And after the three months, if you show signs of change, then they welcome you back. But about that, during the probation time, you cannot do anything. Yeah. We, we had a, we had a, yeah, we had procedures like similar to that, you know, we, we never excommunicated nobody, but you know, we have, you know, set leaders down or people down for various reasons, you know, and put them in probation. We hadn't done it in a long time. I mean, that was years and years ago. I can't remember the last time we've done that, you know, but like I tell folks, I don't wake up every morning trying to find out who, who need to be sit down. You know what I mean? I, I, I tell people that. Now, if it hit my desk, I got to deal with it. But if, if it don't hit my desk, I ain't trying to find out, you know, uh, uh, because I don't think that's what God called me to do, is to be investigating everybody's family, house, and whatever going on like that. That's not what he called me to do. But again, in the Catholic faith, they take this excommunication thing a little bit more serious than other faith. They will cut you off, and, and they, you can't take communion when you, when you get communion. And that's a big deal uh, for their faith. But Paul now is trying to get them to see, okay, Major, I'm glad you remember the, the first Corinthian where he talked about this guy, so just that same guy come back around, along with some other others who are probably out there spreading bad rumors about Paul and things of that nature. But look what he said. He says in verse 5, I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the tr trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. He didn't really hurt me, but he hurt the whole body. Because he was infecting nobody, he hurt hurt you all, and so he may have in talking about could be talking about the people who may have been lying on him and, and and all that. He said even though he's doing that, he is not necessarily hurting me. He's hurting you more than he hurt me. I'm not there. You all are there, and so now y'all have to feel all that pain. Y'all have to feel all his anguish and all those things, or have to deal with his situation. So he says I'm not overstating that when I say that. He says most. Coming back to it, say now he says, not all of you, but most of you opposed him. And that was punishment enough. He says, now when, when you confront someone that's doing wrong, most of you oppose him, say, that's punishment enough. So he said, now, now that we've gotten that out of the way, and that you don't punish him to a certain degree, now you got to change your attitude and be willing to accept the brother back. And, and that's why I think, you know, you know, it can be difficult for some people depending on what the person has done. But, but, but that don't change God's requirement for us to forgive. I mean, because we have to always remember what he forgave us for. 
from, and, and gave us for, and forgave us for. And so as a result of understanding that, then we should always be thinking about what God has done for us when it comes to dealing with someone else. To, 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 to meet out punishment on someone without thinking about your own self could make you be harsher than you need to be. And sometimes when people are doing that, they are not looking at their own circumstances. But the Lord has, how good he has been to them with that grace, you know, in spite of what they've been going through. And that can be tough. That can be tough. He says, now, now, however, verse 7, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Uh-huh. Time, is that, is that time? He's going to show a little some signs of repentance. Time to forgive and, and comfort him. God, that's too. He said, you got to forgive him. And not only you got to forgive him, you got you to comfort him. He says, otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. In other words, like you said, Major, today, ain't going to be no otherwise. They ain't gonna, they ain't gonna, today, they ain't giving you time to forgive. The minute you do something that people don't like, they exit and they're going on to the next place. And again, now with church online, I don't, man, look here. I don't need to see Pastor Bolden. Man, I can go to Joel's church every Sunday. Joel don't know me. don't know what I'm doing. He don't know nothing about me. I click in and he called me a member online. Talk to me just like I'm his friend. Fred? You know, he do. And so therefore, now with that relationship, I still can say I'm getting my spiritual needs met because I'm tuning in. And then at the same time, unless you're going to preach, preach a message that's going to cause me to think about why I'm watching him now, because I left for a reason, now I may feel like, hey, I don't need to repent because I can just watch Joel and say, I'm still going to church. I'm still doing what I'm supposed to do. And I, and I can't say that's right, wrong, and different. I'm just saying that I'm pretty sure that that's how some people will handle that. But, but maybe not, if you don't see this right or wrong, but the question is, have you changed? If, if, if you're just saying, okay, well, hey, okay, they're mad at me over here. You know, that's not the question to ask. It's, it's you know, am I going to repent honestly and change? Because if that's the case, then I could come back to strive. I mean, I'm not going to excommunicate, you know, my comfort and my forgiveness if I intend to change. Now, if I'm going to keep, you know, sleeping, then... Okay, yeah, I, I just stay at home and watch it online. So where, when does the change come? And, and who's helping you change? And, and, that's, and that's a good question and, 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 and an excellent point. And I think that's where we would have to hope that if that person do have some sense that the Holy Spirit is still into them, that the Word of God will convict them from time to time and deal with their conscience. You know, and, and, and if the Word of God deal with their conscience and convict them, then you will hope that will cause them to make the necessary changes that they need to make in their lives. Especially when they're doing things that they know that go contrary to what they've been taught, or they know that go contrary to what the Word of God say, you know, that the Spirit of God got to play a role in that. Because if not, you know, you will find yourself where the Bible says our senses can become dull. And once your senses become dull, things that used to uh, stir your spirit up no longer do it. Because now your spirit is being interacted with a lot of other things that speak on top of that, and you're not getting the spiritual 
nourishment that you need on a weekly basis or like you should be getting it, and you're not taking in good nourishment, so therefore you're getting a diet that may not be consistent with the Word of God. And it's going to impact us, all of us. But Fred, go ahead. You know, but, but if you don't repent and you go to Pastor Jones Church, you can't leave you behind. You're going to take you there. So once you get there, you're going to start doing the same thing you was doing at Strive. Because, you know, you, you, you're still going there with you. So those urges are still there. If you haven't repented, uh, you're going to start doing the same thing. And eventually they're going to find you out. And then they're going to contact Pastor Bowler and say, why did, you, why did he leave there? Yeah. Is, is this the reason? Yeah. And you got to tell the truth. And, and that's a good point. If, if a person is running away from correcting themselves, and now I see that person say, hey, I just want to say I went to church, but I don't necessarily say I want the church to be in me to the point where it changed me. So therefore, if I feel like I met my obligation, I go to church now, I go to a different church, and because Brother Fred didn't ask for a letter or ask me where I come from and why I left and all that, you know, because most you know, when people join our church, we don't put them through no degrees like that. You know, you, we ask them, give them a little questionnaire, ask them their church experience, but we don't ask, you know, you know, uh, why did you leave your last church? Never come across our mind. You know? And, and, and so if that person left there for cause and they haven't dealt with that cause, like Fred said, sooner or later, that same cause is going to show up. You know? It'll be new to us, but it won't be new to folks that already know. So, hey, because, like they say uh, in the criminal world, criminals have an M.O. That's how the police catch them. Because they got a certain way that they operate. And, and if they got that operating system in them, whether they are striving or Beulah or First Baptist over there, they're going to still operate in the core of their M.O. It's going to come out. saying, you know, no matter what, our responsibility is to forgive and comfort. Yeah, when, you know, after enough people have opposed him, and then you have punished him enough, he said. You don't, you don't do what you're supposed to do. You don't punish him enough. Now, after you get to wherever that enough is, however, it's time. He said, it's time. So, meaning that you've been put him in isolation, you don't do whatever you're going to do. Now, it's time for you to forgive and comfort him. You can't and you know, just think about this. Just think about some of y'all that got big families, man, and you are at odds with your brother or your sister. You don't realize it's, it's time. It's time. You still holding on to stuff that they did 10 years ago. And the Lord said, it's time. Time for you to forgive and to comfort. And sometimes that can be difficult. When it comes to our family member, because we want to remember what, what they did, you know, they did it when mama was living, and mama gone. Mama been gone 10 years. And y'all ain't spoke since mama. And Lord said, it's time. It's time. Because the requirement to forgive ain't going away. It's going to always be in God's word. It's time. To forgive and to comfort your brother or your sister. I'm talking about your natural families now. I ain't just talking about your spiritual family, but time. Because there are some people online right now, you know you got some issues with your brothers and your sister at home. And the Lord just said, it's, it's time. And, and sometimes that can cause them to become worse 
because they say, hey, don't nobody love, don't nobody care about me. So they, instead of getting better, you know, they get worse because they, you're not forgiving them, that family member. And they figure that I'm not loved anymore by anybody, so they just go off the deep end. Amen. That, that's why he says, otherwise he may become overcome by discouragement. So therefore, if I don't get the, the connectivity, the love in the family, then I may look for it somewhere else, and it may not be beneficial to me. I deal with people that don't necessarily love me, but they pretend that they do, but they want to take advantage of me. And so that happens in real life. You see that happen in the lives of people all the time when they fall out with their family and they end out. And that's why a lot of kids um, end up in gangs. Because gangs really teach love. They, they, get, they, they deal, drill down on that. You know, you, you, when you join, we blood, you know, we in this thing forever. We love you. And, 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 and in essence, we're going to replace your family. And when a kid is not getting that love at home and don't feel that love at home, then it's easy to be pulled into something that, in the long run, that may do more harm than good. But I'm with some groups that we are family now. They use language like that. Hey, this family. Yeah. I mean, that, they use the same language. Hey, hey, we're a team. You know, we ride or die. I mean, I mean, they use the same language, man. The principle is the principle. It don't make no difference who uses it. And so what we got to understand that God wants us to use it for good because we don't want our brother or our sister to become discouraged. He says, now look, in verse 8, so I urge you now to reaffirm. If you're going to reaffirm, that means you're bringing them back to a place they was at. Reaffirm your love for him. You know, assert again in a strong way how much you love that person. And, and maybe I wish I could stand here and tell you how that looked like, especially if you're dealing with this in your family. I don't know what that looked like because I don't know what people that went through in your family, what you did to your sister, what your sister did to you, and however y'all fell out. But at some point in time, you got to go back to where y'all were before the fallout. And say, now he said, you got to reaffirm. Something tore y'all apart. So I got to go back to how we were before the fallout. And, and I guarantee you, if you allow the Spirit of God to minister to you, he will take you back to that place. And so we tell him, hey, you got to reaffirm your love for him. And whatever you used to do for your family member, your friend, or whoever it was you fell out with, you just got to go back and reaffirm it. Put the ball in their court. And if they don't accept the forgiveness and the comfort, that ain't on you. At least you know your heart and your conscience will be clear. Because you've done what God wants you to do. You can't make people accept your apology or your love or whatever, but you can offer it in spite of them. God didn't make us accept the love of Christ, but he offered it in spite of us. So the same way. So I think sometimes the reason we don't do it because we feel like if I do it and this person don't respond the way that I think they should, then now my pride and my feelings is all hurt. No, I did what God told me to do. No different when Cliff was preaching on Sunday about miracles. Hey, whether God healed your cousin, your uncle, your mom, dad, whoever, you still got to believe he can and believe that the outcome is up to him. And so therefore, it's the same way. If God tell me to forgive and go and show this person love, I got to still believe that they're going to receive it. But if they don't, then I know God is already pleased with me. 
And he got to be pleased. You got to feel like he's pleased with you. But sometimes we allow the enemy to talk us out of doing what God wants us to do. Because the enemy makes more sense to our natural man. Because it feels good. Okay, they did me wrong. Okay, I'll never need to see them again. That ain't family. That ain't a team. You know? And, and so when he looked at it, he says, now look. This is, I thought it was, he says, I wrote to you as I did to test. Somebody said, test you. Yes. You know what you do when you test somebody? You either ask them a question or you tell them to do something. Say, I can see if you're going to do it or not. See, I could be testing some of y'all tonight. I'm saying this to just test some of y'all who are online to see if you're going to call your sister or your brother or your auntie or your daddy or whoever you need to call. It's a test. And you either pass the test or you fail. You can sit here and you can feel it right now, but guess what? When you leave out the door, the enemy waves. He waiting on you. You're going to say, oh, you just feeling it in there because y'all in there all together. You know, I like this and all that. You ain't really mean that. No. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put the ball in that person's court because I see this lesson as a test. If you're online, it's testing you. If you got somebody out there that you got some issues with, say, I wrote you this. I wrote to you as I did to test you and to see if you would com fully comply with my instructions. I gave you something to do, and then now it's up to you to see if you're gonna see if you if, if you're gonna follow through with what you've been instructed to do. So Paul said, I, I, I was testing y'all, man. When I wrote y'all this, I was seeing, I can come back and find out. Man, y'all didn't even forgive the brother. Because I told y'all it's time to forgive him. It's time for you to comfort and love him. But y'all didn't do it. <laughs> Y'all didn't even follow the instruction. Now look at this verse. That, that's tough right there, man. That make you think right there. You know, sometimes, you know, the word test and tip, you know, sometimes in the Bible it's used in a chamber. People afraid to use the word test because they say, well, you know, God don't test it. Well, you know, God don't tempt you to sin, but God will test your faith every now and then. So God will give you a little test to see if, you know, you you walking by faith or you walking by sight, you know. But but what we got to understand is that God is always trying to see if we're going to live up to the standard and pass the test. I mean, why give us all these instructions if He don't expect us to pass the test or at least make eighty on the test? I mean, He don't expect us to flunk. Amen. Fully comply. I mean, you got to forgive, comfort that brother, then you got to reaffirm him with your love for him. Man, that can be tough, depending on what the brother did to you. And so, I was looking the other day online, and, and, uh, and someone was knocking the church because they said, hey, you know, language like this where God talk about forgiving and loving, that just don't sell today with young folk. And they was using the example of uh, when Dylan Roof went down and shot up the church, and then these folks, they look at them, look at them folk. 
they've been just brainwashed by the white man's religion. This boy done came here and killed nine of their members. And two days later, they're out there talking about we're going to forgive them. Now, that just don't make no sense. They've been brainwashed. That boy hate black folk. Probably always have. And now they're going to get up in church and tell us, the rest of the world, we forgive them. They've been brainwashed. Ain't that much forgiveness in the world. Now, this is how the world look at the church who's trying to live out this. When the folk got up and say they were going to forgive that dude, these guys say, that church ain't making no sense. Where is God's wrath? Judgment. And so, you know, if you're talking to someone who don't know the scripture, that would make speak to that flesh. You're right. Man, this dude was at McDonald's eating after he done killed nine folks. And then when the police got him, they ain't even beat him now. They ain't do nothing to him. They just put him in, talk, fed him, like, like, made him like he was a little hero or something. And now you're going to tell me we got to get up and talk about forgive? Now to us, we all here celebrating that. Oh, man, that's strength right there. But to the world, looking at that, that ain't making no sense. And so what I'm trying to tell you, when it comes to us doing things when someone has wronged us, we can't listen to the noise from the devil. Because the devil ain't going to never tell you to do what God wants you to do. And that's a tough case, Major. I know you said, man, that, Pastor, do you really think, do you really think God wants me to consider forgiving that person like that? That's a tough question. But based on his word, you know, all we got is his example. And, and Jesus gave us a good example. Say, Father, forgive him. Why they were killing him. So it's tough. He says, so I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you will fully comply with my instruction. He said, now look at verse 10 and 11. It says, when you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs, to, when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. So that, look at this, so that Satan will not outsmart us. Because Satan will tell you, do you ain't that much forgiveness in the world? Satan got a strategy. He ain't going to let you forgive. He ain't going to let you go back and love. He ain't going to let you go back and reaffirm. Because he know if he can keep you divided, that we can divide it. So he said, look, he man, so that Satan will not outsmart us. Satan ain't dumb. Amen. And so he's a deceiver. He can manipulate. He can do that. He is not dumb. And he's trying to outsmart us. For we are familiar with his evil scheme. Well, we know that the devil comes to kill, 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 steal, kill, and destroy. So therefore, if he can break up the body of Christ, divide and conquer, that's what he's going to do. And so when we don't operate in, in that interdependence and we start falling apart from each other, we just playing right into the devil's hand. We don't fell into his scheme. His scheme is to cause you to feel like someone don't like you, did something to you, so that you can say, hey, I'm out of here. That's part. So he said, look, you got to make up in your mind that we ain't going to let him outsmart us. God done gave us his playbook 
we know what place he's going to run. He's been running them ever since the garden. And so therefore he said, look, you can't let him outsmart us. For we are familiar with his evil schemes. Anytime the end result of something that we do is evil, it is not coming from God. Brother Fred, go ahead. I think once we look at the consequences of unforgiving, then we'll be more quick to forgive. Because the consequences of unforgiving is a whole lot worse than if you just go on and forgive because it bothers you more. And it's not bothering that person that you didn't forgive. You know, you're the one going through all the stress and all the other things. Plus, you know, you're not getting forgiveness from God if you're not forgiving your fellow man. You Amen. And, and like he just said, now you're giving Satan, you're opening the door for Satan to come in. Amen. Because he is capable of, uh, capable of outsmarting us. Outsmarting us. And so if I know that, then I need to make sure that I know enough about him so I can tell when he's operating. That's why the Bible go out of its way to describe to us how the devil does that. He's a liar. He's a deceiver, a manipulator, a thief. It tells us how he operates. And so therefore, when those things are in the atmosphere, then that ain't God. Because that is not God's MO. God wants the family to be together as a unit. But the enemy wants to divide the family. The sad thing about it, Fred, is that the enemy works through people. It'd be easy if he was just a spirit we couldn't see, man. But he works through people. I think we look like, but when the spirit goes show up, it's in her. It's in him. I mean, he works through people. So just like God do good through people, the enemy works evil through people. And so that's why it's important for us not to allow ourselves and stay on guard so that we don't become an instrument of the devil. We want to always be an instrument of God. And sometimes the devil going to get in. He going to, you know, he, he, he ain't shut out all the time. Every now and then he can get a, a win, but he don't have the ultimate victory. And so now that we know that, then therefore we got to always move and live and operate from the standpoint that God has given us the victory over the enemy. Jesus came to subdue him and give us the victory. But it's up to us to walk in that victory. So he looked at it, he said, verse 12. Then he started talking about his travels again. He says, now, when I came to the city of Tros to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity. In other words, I had a, an opportunity. I'm going to talk about that a little bit uh, in, a, in a series I'm thinking about doing. Talking about opportunity. He says, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. And even though God had opened this door of opportunity because there was a need there, he said, God opened this opportunity, but man, because I was so concerned about how y'all may be treating my boy. I couldn't get no peace, even though the God, man, I was supposed to be over here witnessing the major, but I'm thinking I done left Timothy down there with Timothy with them Corinthians, man. And, I'm, and I ain't got no peace. I can't even get major together because I'm worried about, man, I done left Timothy. I never with them folks who were mad at me. 
and they may be taking it out on Timothy. That's my young son in ministry, man. They, man, I ain't got no peace, man. So I got, to, I got to get up from here, and I got to go and check on Timothy because I left him down there. And, and the, the folks that I didn't want to go back and confront, I left Timothy down there. And now I'm concerned since I hadn't heard from him, how's he doing down there? Because if they came against me, he younger, they may look at his youth and decide, well, hey, if, you know, Paul didn't come back, so we're just going to take it out on young Timothy. So look what he said. He says, when I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. But I had no peace of mind because my dear brother Titus, Titus and Timothy, hadn't yet arrived with a report. I'm sorry, I said Timothy, but Titus. He says, my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia to find him. Because I hadn't heard nothing back. And I know that, you know, this church again, even though it was a good church, they had some people in there that probably, Paul, Paul probably thought that, hey man, you know, I'd have been stoned when I went to certain places. I'd have been left for dead. So hey, there, there is a possibility there could be some people down there that is notorious enough to want to take it out on Titus. They mad at me, but they're going to take it. You know people do that all the time now. Sometimes people displace their aggression. They mad at somebody else, but they take it out on a lesser person. You know, and that's what they used to tell us all the time uh, when I was an instructor and teaching us the psychology of people. Say a lot of times when people have displaced aggression, you know, when a guy hit a wall, he ain't mad at the wall. Somebody else, them, he's mad at, but he, can't, he, he ain't got the nerve to hit that person, so he go hit a wall, put a hole in the wall. But that same person will come home, he mad at somebody else, and he take it out on his kid. So now his kids done did a minor offense that the word of just a little bit of tap here and there, and now the kid get the serious beat down because now he mad at his boss. And so the kid is feeling the brunt of that. And that's how, when we were coming up, that's why we used to think, and we didn't know nothing about no psychology, no displaced aggression. We just wanted to know why granddaddy and them beating us so bad. <laughs> Man, all we did was ate an apple off the tree. You know, this dude beat us like we done stole, done stole a million dollars. Well, granddaddy probably mad at the man he just left. He couldn't talk back to Mr. John like that. So now he come home and we done ate one of his apples and we get the beat down. For all he wanted to say to Mr. John. He took it out on us. And people still do that sometimes. I mean, I think they displace their aggression. They mad at something else, and then all of a sudden, now their kids catch it. Other people catch it. So that's why I tell people sometimes when people come in church on Sunday, they didn't wake up thinking that they were going to upset you. They didn't have you in their mind when they left home. I'm going to go and jump on Major today. No, it was something that happened to them at home or the night before somewhere else, and Major just the easy target. When I walk in church, I'm going to take it out on Major. And that's why I tell people, don't take it personal. When you come in here, don't take it personal. Don't believe that someone had you so important that they thought about you all night long that they're going to get to church and just give you what they got. No, you ain't, you're not that important to most folks. The people that really want you are going to come at you before you get to church. Amen. The people that come at you in church, they mad at somebody else. You just so happen to be the person coming down the hall right now, they mad at somebody else. 
And so when we understand that and we understand how people respond and how people act, then that will put us in a position where we are not offended. I mean, I, the best book that we ever studied here, man, we done studied about two times, three times, the Beta Satan. That one of the best studies we ever did. Because that book really talk about how we take the bait too often, man. And once you take the bait, man, the devil got you. And so sometimes we got to know when we being baited. Because people will, they will bait you into the argument, man. They'll bait you. They just got it out there, they dangling. They know, they just keep fishing. You're going to hit the hook, they got you now. You got to say, man, I'm being baited. But if your pride and you, and, and you feel like you just can't hold your peace, then you're going to take the bait. And it's on now. The family all messed up. Church folk going at each other like that. Because now we don't see that interdependence. Because if I know that we're dependent on one another, I won't even throw the bait at you, man. I ain't going to even bait you into this argument. I'm going to try to just, hey, if we got something to say, let's be honest and say straight up to each other. And don't let's bait somebody into doing something that they didn't have no intention of doing. So, go ahead, bro. But, but you don't expect that when you come to church. You caught off guard when you come to church. You think that, hey, this is a place of peace. I'm going to go, get my praise on. I'm, I'm in church. My brothers and sisters, we're supposed to love each other. I can't believe he or she, she said that. And that's a true statement. That's why, that's why you hear people say, church hurt is the worst church hurt you can get, man. You know, the boys in the hood did you wrong, and next week y'all partying together still, drinking the 40s together. You get hurt at church, hey, there ain't no forgiveness there. And that ain't the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be able to forgive each other, but sometimes we can forgive, and I used to see this sometimes in big families, whereas if one of their brothers or sisters did something wrong to them, they hold it forever. But then Joe Blow down the street did something wrong to them next week, they out there having fun together. And they ain't even speaking to their brothers. So that, that just don't make no sense. Family should be coming first in this thing, you know. We ought to prefer one another. That's what the Bible say. Prefer one another. And so therefore, when we don't do that, then what that does, it gives the world an opportunity to take a, a snapshot of the church and say, hey, if that's how they're operating, then I really don't need to be a part of that. And I do think that that's what turned a lot of people off when they see the church not functioning like a body or like a team or like a family. You know, there's no perfect church. I tell people this all the time. You know, if you, you think you're going to the perfect church, you just get there. You're going to mess it up. <laughs> Amen. You know, ain't no perfect church out there. Because when you show up, imperfection in there. So now look, let me go ahead and wrap this up. So in verse uh, 14, he started talking about this, this uh, in a, like a new relationship, this, how God see us and how we should see ourselves. He kind of shift gears here and started painting the picture of, of us being captives. You know, if you can get the picture of a Roman general coming back to town or emperor after they don't want a war and they leading all the captives and they got the, the priests and the people play, uh, uh, spreading the incense, the sweet smell of aroma, the aroma of victory. You know, they don't want or they've been captured. So you can look at that two ways, like winning a battle and coming back or it can look at us as being God's captive. Now God done pulled us from what we was in and now we are following Jesus in this victory train. 
And so as we follow Jesus in this victor train, then guess what? He's expecting us now to be that sweet-smelling aroma. And that aroma is going to be good to some people, and it's going to be bad to other people. Now, this is probably one of the toughest passages of the Bible here because he kind of make it look like that, hey, that, 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 that what you spread can be the difference between life and death and the life of the person you're spreading it to. He said, look at this. But thank God. And some of you about to say, but thanks be to God. He has made us his captives and continue to lead us along with Christ in Christ's triumphal procession. And now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. So we're supposed to be giving off a fragrance when we go around people. People ought to sense who we are and who we represent by the way we carry ourselves. They ought to say something in us to say, hey, that don't mean we're perfect, that don't mean we don't do certain things, but it, they ought to see something in us to say, hey, you know, you're putting off a different aroma than everybody else. You're in the midst of all these people, but you're, some, you're somewhat different than other people. And so therefore, when we do that, and we represent him that way by living in accordance with his word or by striving to, to be more like Jesus, the world is supposed to see that as a sweet-smelling aroma. And, and the sad news is that to some people, it's going to be an aroma that gives life, and to some people, it's going to stink and going to bring death. You know, all perfumes are designed for folks to think they smell good. I mean, nobody designed a stinky perfume and said, I just want Major to smell this and go, this stinks. Nobody do that. Perfume's supposed to smell good. But all of your noses don't like the same scent. Major can sniff this and say, oh, man, that's sweet. Bolden can go and sniff that and say, oh, man, I don't like that. That's, just, that's too strong. That, that just don't sit well with me. But we smell in the same perfume. No different. People hearing the same word, hearing your same testimony. And some people are going to smell it and they say, man, that's a powerful testimony Brother Purdue give living. And I want to hear more of it. But another person is going to say, man, I ain't got time for that. That ain't, I ain't what I want to hear. Brother Purdue over there talking about, he thought, forgiven? Uh, that ain't the perfume I want to smell today. Talking about no forgiving. I'm ready to listen to the dude who said, let's get radical and go kill some folk. You know, I'm just telling you, because there's an element out there of people who want to hear that message and therefore is looking for to take things in their own hand when that is not God's best for us. So he says, now look, so now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ. That's why we got to know him so we can spread the knowledge of him, about him. Everywhere, like a sweet perfume. He says, now look, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. Everybody's smelling the same thing, but they're perceiving it differently. And how they perceive it and how they understand it is going to determine how they respond to it. And to some people, the message of the cross don't make no sense. And to other people, it makes a lot of sense and leads to life. 
So he says, now look, to those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? Wow. Man, that, that means that, you know, as Christians, man, that's a serious task to have, to be that sweet-smelling perfume. Paul said, man, it just ain't going to happen. You got to live this thing so that you will be adequate to carry out this assignment. And good, the good thing is that he gave that assignment to all of us. All of us are supposed to be spreading the gospel. All of us are supposed to be trying to live like Jesus lived. We're all supposed to be trying to be that sweet-smelling aroma and not changing based upon the environment that we're in. We're supposed to be consistent with how we present the gospel. Because then he comes back and says, man, this is such a task, and obviously there must have been a lot of other folks out there carrying on, but not necessarily in the right spirit, because now he defines them as hucksters. You know, peddlers. Some of your Bibles say peddlers of the gospel. He says now, in verse 17, as we're giving a wrap up, he says, you see, we are not like many hucksters. So even back then, there were people who were out there pimping the gospel. Pelling the gospel. That's what a huckster is. You know, like in the old days, you know, like that traveling salesman coming around selling you all the snake oil that's supposed to cure everything, do everything, sound good, and taking advantage of people, but they just don't know the truth. And so therefore, he says, look, there are, there are, so we are not like many hucksters who preach for personal profit. They, their only motivation is to, the term they use in the Bible, like you hear Christian churches, is that sometimes uh, there are preachers who fleece the flock. The flock provide all the wool and all that, and, and instead of the, 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 the flock being blessed, all the wool is sold and the pastor being blessed. He's the only one being blessed. You know, he living large, they ain't living large. There ain't nothing wrong with a pastor who got a nice church, live large, but he shouldn't be the only person in the church living large. There ought to be other people in the church who are living just as comfortable as he's living. He shouldn't be the only one. He shouldn't be playing games with people to get money out of them just for him or her or whoever. And so when, when, when that is happening, that's why they say you can Fleece the flock. You, 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 you know that there's a certain thing that you can do or say that play with people's emotions, and you can play games. You can make people feel embarrassed because they couldn't give. Uh, anniversary's coming up, you know. Pastor Bo get you know, man, God. Oh, Lord. You know, it's been years. It's been years since, you know, they done gave me a personal anniversary gift, you know. I know they look out for Lady Jeanette for been years, man, since they give her. And, and Major, man, what you think about that? Don't you think Pastor, Pastor deserves something, Major? You know, hey, you know. And, and Major, I think you ought to start this off, Major, because I know you're well able. And, and just, 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 just pledge $500 to Pastor. Now, I know everybody can't pledge $500, but if I can get Major to pledge first, I'm going to get y'all $5. 
I'm going to get you, because all the $500 folk going to get up with major. Because there's some people say, well, I'm on that level. Let me go on there and lay mine down, too. After, after that stop, I was okay, I know somebody got 300. Come on, come on. This pastor, 27 years. One church, 27 years. You ought to be just at least give me $5 for every year. And so what I'm trying to tell you, when games like that are played to put people on a guilt trip, then now that's fleecing the flock. Because I know that if I play with people hard long enough, I know enough people in striving and love me that someone will drop $500 down if I ask them to. But money has never motivated me. <laughs> now, Major type, Major ain't gonna drop five. Major, Major gonna go back and search the scriptures. Major, <laughs> where you got that from? Where, they, where did somebody give $500 to the. Nah. <laughs> So that's what he's saying. He says, now, when you look, all you got to do is look at Christian TV. If you look at Christian TV enough, you can tell those ministers out there that's, that's fleecing people, selling them everything. You need some water from Israel. This water got special anointing power. You need some of it. Now, come on, man. That dude ain't been no Israel and got all that water. But if you that, if you that locked in and don't know that you're being taken advantage of, You'll think that, hey, man, I'm going to get this dude this $50 for this water and believe that that's going to get my blessing. I'm going to get my breakthrough because I want to buy it. Instead of believing that if I obey God, I don't need the water. All I need to do is walk in obedience and God's going to want to bless me. Brother Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I got, I've been part of something similar to that. I was in Miami and then um, I was a preacher and I was, we were going to that church, this church. And then he was raising some money. And um, everybody said he started from $1,000. And I wouldn't want to give him the envelopes. So somebody, he raised the hand, $1,000 envelopes. I give it out. 500 I give it out. When he said 300 I took one in my pocket for me. And he said, wait a minute, to everybody. He said, this construction man, there is a widow right here. She took an envelope of 500 Dollars and he's taking an envelope of 300. You know, a, a widow, she ain't got a husband. Uh, you know, and then, you know, she, he just changed the whole thing of the service. I'm saying, that's her business. She took a week, one of $500, I took one of 300. And he just stopped the whole service and he addressed me, you know, right in Miami, my family, whatever, everybody was there. And then that was what you could do. So, you know, I'm just saying how you've been part of something, but then somebody just singled you out. And I've been singled out. In the church Amen. And, and it's an art to it. I mean, I done been to where, you know, when it was popular. I mean, back in the early 2000, the late 90s, 1990s and all that, that was popular. When you went to a conference, you knew you were going to get fleeced. You know, yeah, I mean, you knew. Before you leave that, they're going to get it out you. They're going to sell it to you or you, they're going to do an offering. And, and, and by the time you see Major get up and give his thousand and this will get out. And I know everybody ain't got a thousand. But I'm going to get to the $5 guy, too, because I'm going to make him feel like you want to be a part of this. You want to be a part of this anointing that's going to flow off of your gift to Pastor Bowden. You just want to be a part of this anointing. So I start off with the 1000 because I'm just playing the numbers. Okay, if I get five of them, they give me that 5000 Okay, got it. Then I probably got about $10,500 up in here. Okay, got it. Okay, that's all right. That's, that's the thing. Okay, yeah. Okay. Then now I'm going to work down to, to the $5 guys. Hey, look. I know you ain't got but five, but this is the man of God. 
God will bless you for whatever you got. And I'm seeing that happen right over in Pensacola. We went to a conference back then. I laid it start. It started out with the 1999 blessing. It was, it was the year 1999. And this is what you need. You need to bring your 1999 for the blessing. But by the time she got through, she was down to 99 cents. You know what I mean? Anything with a 99 in it. Because, again, it's a psychology that people who don't suspect is going to happen to them when they go to church, and all of a sudden now, I done got caught up in the atmosphere, and I don't be the only person sitting here to say, I can at least give something. And so now, and they know that. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's how the game is played. It is, and it's all about how people think when they're put on the spot like that. You know, hey, that's just the way it was done. Now, some of those ministries was a blessing to people. I mean, some of the words they put out was great, but they just knew how to get money out of folks. I mean, when we first went out to Houston, man, I'd never seen nobody raise $100,000 in 10 minutes. I mean, look at Tim Major. Well, he said, look, the budget is in. And I want everybody that got 10000 and them preachers, them big talk, got getting in line. Bam! Bam! Till he got down to us, they didn't have but 1000 I was scared to go to Major. But, one, but once I got in line, I had to do something. Because he got us all in line. He didn't tell us up front. I want all the preachers, the, the, the pastors, to get in line. And we got in line, and, and the guys, he had plants. Start off by giving $10,000 because he knew them. They were they was boys. And I'm sitting at the end of the line. By the time we get down to us, you know, I'm looking up at man, I ain't going to be embarrassed. I mean, I've been like, we're going to give us something. I never get that. I looked up at Gene and Mo was up in, the, up in the balcony. I look back there and say, and now they went, okay, so striving for perfection ministry, you know, bam. I think it was $2,000 we gave right there on the spot like that. And after it was over, man, I said, man, we just been hustled. I do, he, he, he got me in that line. I was just too embarrassed to say, we ain't got it. I should have just went and sit down. <laughs> but, but no, I wasn't going to get embarrassed. So, but, but, but I say that in, in joking. I look back at that and say, man, ministries could be still doing that today. Not that that was wrong. That's just how they raised money. I mean, that's just how they, how they did it. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't keep up with him that much no more. Uh-huh. So he said, now look, so we, we, so you see, we are not like many hucksters who preach for personal gain. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. Man, that's what we got to always keep in mind, no matter uh, when we represent God and we're in the church or whatever, we got to act like, hey, man, we think that God is watching us. And if we really lived our life like we thought God was watching us, it would change our whole behavior. You know, we, we would not do some of the things that we do if we really thought God was watching. And that's what the Holy Spirit is supposed to be, is that reminder that God sees everything. And so, therefore, because God sees everything, then, therefore, we got to be conscious. And, therefore, when we make a mistake, you just got to tell God you're sorry. I mean, God is not trying to send us all to hell, but he just wants us to be conscious of who he is and that he is everywhere. Amen? Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Amen. Thank God for the lesson.